Thank you. Good morning, Wellington Church. <clears throat> it's been about a year since I've been here, and so um, I need to say at the beginning, my name is Rob Penner. If you've been new over the last year, you may not know that I was a pastor here until last summer. That's when I preached my last sermon here on this platform. And it was last summer that the doctors discovered cancer in my body. It's still there, by the way. The initial prognosis did not have me looking too far into the future, just probably several months. Uh, I've been on medical leave ever since. Uh, that several months has turned into a really great year, uh, just a wonderful year. I don't want to say one of the best years of my life. They've all been good. <clears throat> But I, I do want to express my, my deep and earnest thanks to this church family for your prayers. I know that uh, my, I see my name on a prayer list many times, myself and Joy, um, and the cards and the, the, the good messages, and all of it contributes to the strength and well-being, and I think even to be able to do this, what I'm doing today. So I didn't think I'd stand up here again, so I'm grateful to God for this opportunity. But it means that I have to give you two sermons today, I'm sorry. But I know that when you came to church this morning, you were actually hoping that. You'd pulled into the parking lot. Boy, I hope there's two sermons today, right? Everybody thinks that. Said no one ever. Uh, in Cantonese, we call this my yes song yet. In Mandarin, my yi song yi, or buy one, get one. <laughs> the first sermon is an exhortation from someone with a terminal illness. That's what they tell me I have, so I've got to say it. And the good news for you is that only 30 seconds long. <laughs> so here it is. Savor your life now. And look forward to an even better one for eternity. <laughs> That's, I think, the biggest message I've got over this year. This is truly a beautiful world that we live in. Uh, everything that God has given us, everything's a gift. So as much as you're able to, enjoy the gifts. And then look forward to an eternity because the mind behind the beauty of creation that we express today, that we have today, is, I'm quite sure, created something that we can't even imagine in terms of beauty for all eternity. So lay down your, um, if you're fighting with somebody, stop it. If you're worrying about anything, just stop it. <laughs> lay down all your bitterness, all your worries, all the life-sapping stuff that's not going to be there when we get to be in that place forever. But love people, worship God, follow Jesus, and enjoy the life God has given you. That's sermon number one. Do you want me to quit now and just do the benediction? No, I don't think the church would allow that. Sermon number two, I'm sorry, is going to be a little bit longer. <clears throat> this is the final sermon in the series on Romans 9 to 11. And in these three chapters, it's kind of that part of Romans that a lot of people just sort of skip over. Um, on the one hand, it seems like these three chapters are hard to apply directly. On the other hand, it feels like they're full of these explosive theological landmines that can blow up. Uh, I've really appreciated how the preaching team over these last few months has brought out Paul's thinking clearly, at least in my mind, simply and clearly, and has unified us. Not divided us, but unified us around the grace and mercy of God, which I think is Paul's purpose in writing these chapters to the Roman church. But let's begin today by thinking of uh, something, the recent craze around DNA testing. My wife, Joy, is really intrigued by all things ancestry. So she's traced back her side many generations, traced back my side many generations, 
And there's been a few surprises along the way. A few months back, a total stranger from Wales, a woman, contacted Joy to ask her why they share DNA. And it turns out this woman is actually Joy's first cousin. <laughs> she was um, the daughter of an uncle that Joy had never known, and no one in the family had ever heard of before, but yet he was an uncle. And um, for her entire life, Joy had thought that she was the oldest cousin on her father's side. And immediately, just instantaneously, she was dropped to number two. This woman is older than her. But the incident made me wonder, how many of us have relatives out there <laughs> that we've never met? A few years before that, my sister had also done the DNA test. And she did it at the urging of her daughter, my niece Beverly, who um, was constantly asked, had been constantly asked through her life, if she is part Chinese. She wanted to know if maybe we have some Chinese uh, ancestors. Well, incidentally, I'm often asked the same thing by people. Sometimes complete strangers will come up to me and ask if I'm either Eurasian or completely Asian. Well, my sister's test showed that there is no Chinese blood in our family, and to me that's a bit unfortunate. I wish there was. <laughs> Uh, but we had always thought that we were 50% German, my father's side, German Mennonite, and 50% Norwegian, my mother's side. Well, even those stats didn't prove true. We were way more German than Norwegian, and I don't know if that's a cause for rejoicing or weeping, but that's what it is. And we were even 2% Irish, which means that sometime way back, maybe when the Vikings went to the British Isles, an Irishman became, got into my family somehow probably explains why I like limericks so much. <clears throat> well, for someone like me growing up, knowing my father was German, my mother Norwegian, uh, I'm not a, a purebred anyway, <laughs> the results of the DNA tests are not that hard to accept. But what about people from monocultural or even ethnocentric backgrounds? It's normal for some groups to cling tightly to their ethnic identity. Now, I served in the Chinese world for a lot of years, and if one of my Chinese friends did the DNA test and found out they were 10% German, that would come as quite a shock to them. Some groups hold closely to their ethnic identity. They're, they've been mono, monocultural. So my friend Danny Lee, who is up singing this morning, one of the elders at our church, every World Cup will go crazy for Korea because they always make the World Cup, but he just loves it. I couldn't care less about the German or Norwegian teams. Ethnic identity remains a powerful force in society and in our hearts. And today, we use the DNA concept metaphorically to describe the values of, say, a particular community, like a company or a school or a church even. Describe the DNA of your church and so what sets us as Willingdon Church apart from other churches? So there's a map up here, currently not far from us. There's United Churches and Anglicans, Alliance and Baptists, Independents and Catholics and Mennonites. Does our unique DNA of Willingdon Church push us away from other churches into seclusion so we kind of rally around what makes us unique? Or does the DNA we share with other churches open up our arms and embrace? Do we cloister ourselves around unique ways of doing and saying things? 
This is the big issue in the Roman church. The reason why many think that Paul wrote this letter was to bridge this Jew-Gentile divide. They didn't have DNA language in the first century, but they knew they were ethnically, culturally very, very different, and it was so very hard for, for them to come together. The greatest temptation for them was to form themselves around their own cultural identity. And Paul's entire argument through the book of Romans is that our DNA as people has been so reconfigured through the gospel, through Jesus, that there is absolutely now no reason for us to not be one family. So in Romans 9 to 11, these three chapters, he most directly and specifically addresses the nation of Israel, about the nation of Israel, and its place uh, in God's plan of salvation. And he kind of poses a question like this. Is Israel, who had rejected their Messiah, better or worse than others? Older commentators, Martin Luther, about five, six hundred years ago, 550 years ago maybe, Luther had decided that Israel was worse than others. Luther wrote disparagingly about the Jews and actually kicked off a lot of anti-Semitic feelings within the body of Christ that really shouldn't be there. Because for the Apostle Paul, the Jew, when he writes this part of Romans, he doesn't at all share Luther's attitude. Paul even wished that he could be accursed himself so that his Jewish brethren could be saved. And then there's others in more recent church history who have kind of given Israel an elevated status. They're called messianic churches and would order themselves around Old Testament calendar of feasts and celebrations. I can't really see that approach in the New Testament either. In chapters 9 to 11, Paul reflects on this ancient plan of salvation. It began with Abraham, and what he's doing is this. He's showing that the DNA of God's people is not a matter of ethnicity, or any human marker, the entire book of Romans, the entire New Testament, makes clear that we all begin at the ground of the cross of Christ. We share, and I'm talking to every single person in this room, we share being created in God's image, and that is part of our spiritual DNA. And for those of us who have made professed faith in Christ through the cross, we share this understanding of our sinfulness before him and becoming new again through Christ. So in these verses we're looking at today, Paul asks us to make three responses. And the first is this. We re first, we respond with humility. Verses 25 to 27, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Do you notice the first words of this paragraph? Lest you be wise in your own eyes. Human pride has always been the greatest enemy to a right understanding of God and ourselves. What have been the greatest aha moments for you in life? If you're playing the stock market, it might have been when you landed on that stock, aha, and the next day it shot up. 
Or if you've been visiting your psychologist for years, every week for years, and oh, I got it, aha, that moment where I can finally trace my emotional pain back to a relationship or an event. If you're studying theology, it might have been that moment where something about God's character suddenly made sense to you. The greatest impact of studying God's ways, the work of the gospel in our lives, is to give us this aha moment. I am before God a sinner who has inexplicably received mercy. That's the aha moment for us. How ironic that the unique DNA of our churches so often fosters pride rather than humility. So to keep us from becoming wise in our own eyes, we keep preaching the gospel to ourselves, to our church, to the point that we are able to, like Paul in Romans 14 and 15, open our our arms wide and accept others just as Christ has accepted us. Joy and I used to have a friend named Margaret, and Margaret would often say tongue-in-cheek whenever something good would happen to her, God really does love us most. Of course, we smile at that, and she was only joking. But we have this subconscious idea that if we jump through the right hoops or we understand the right mysteries, somehow we'll get a corner on God and his blessing. So to avert pride in his Gentile readers, Paul wants them to be aware of a mystery. It isn't a mystery that's going to make them proud when they can figure out and say, look what a clever boy I am for getting this. It's a mystery meant to humble them. Verses 25 and 26, it's been debated by scholars the way Israel is mentioned. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Two ways of thinking about these verses. Most older commentaries, this is the first way, several newer ones, commentators, felt that Paul was using the term Israel somewhat mysteriously. And in fact, he says, I am writing to you a mystery. So, of course, he is because he said it right himself. That he's writing first about physical Israel and then spiritual Israel. He had earlier said that not all Israel is Israel. So, he's saying that Israel is comprised of both natural descendants of Abraham and faith descendants of Abraham. In that way, according to this line of thinking, the fullness of the Gentiles refers to all of us filling out God's dream of a complete Israel. We are now part of the Israelite community. Other more recent commentators see this as an end times projection. Once God's finished with the Gentiles and Chinese and Japanese and Koreans and tribes in Africa have become Christians, once the age of the Gentiles is finished, there will be a revival among physical Israel. Now, that would be worth quite hours of study, but I don't want to take away from the purpose of this paragraph. The purpose is this. I'll come back to it again. Lest you be wise in your own eyes. (laughs) God has never loved a person based on their physical DNA. He's never loved a person based on how well they can articulate what they believe. God simply loves sinners, all people, who cry out to Him by faith because, verse 27, this is the covenant that I'll make with my people, that I will take away their sins. 
Psalm 143, verses 1 and 2. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. And here's the part I love. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. <laughs> the entire book of Romans is trying to make this our prayer. We accept the gospel of salvation as a gift, which means that pride, whatever its source, ethnic pride, theological pride, political pride, family pride, whenever we see it in ourselves, we know that we need to hear the gospel again. If I'm able to think of myself as one bit better than you in some way, I've forgotten the gospel. My Bible study is yours. My parenting is better than yours. My church is better than yours. Pride loses this vertical focus completely. It only can compare horizontally among ourselves, and we've lost sight of the cross. And that means then that the minute we find ourselves ever looking down on another person, there's a warning light going off in our souls. Go back, go back, go back to the cross. It's time to receive mercy again for who I am, the greatest of sinners. You see, the DNA of God's people is not something that's first written down in our creeds and our statements of faith. Those things are important to help us discern truth from error and to keep us on track. But that's not where God lives. God does not live in our statements of faith. Where does God live? Isaiah 57, 57 verse 15 God says, I dwell in a high and holy place, and also with him who is contrite and lowly spirit. So we respond, first of all, with humility. Second, we respond with mercy, <clears throat> reading verses 28 to 32. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable, just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. Let me just touch on two words that Paul uses repeatedly. Each four times, the words are disobedience and mercy. The Gentiles were once mostly disobedient, and now the Jews are mostly disobedient, both because of their rejection as, of God as being king over all. Obedience is a choice that springs from the belief that someone is worth being obeyed. So if you are my leader, and I think you're a good leader, a person of good character, you're worth being obeyed, then I'll probably obey you from my heart. If I believe that God is trustworthy, that he is worth being obeyed, then I'll forgive the person who just burned down my house last night because God said to do it. Romans has made it clear from the very beginning that the first choice of human beings was to decenter God, to not acknowledge God or to give Him thanks, but to set up their own agenda for the world. 
So consigning them to disobedience in Romans 1 is simply giving them up, letting them walk in a path of their own choosing. God chose to not let us, to not lock us in a prison. He chose to not force us to sing songs of worship to Him that we didn't really mean. He, didn't, he chose to not force us to say, I love you, when He knew that we didn't. Like that father of the prodigal on Luke 15, God is secure enough to allow people to reject Him. He knows that no good will come from it, but obedience must come from the heart. A pastor friend from China, I lived in China for, for quite a few years, and a pastor friend once asked me some, for some advice. So you can think about this situation and figure out how you'd answer him. How to deal with a brother in his church. So here's the story. This guy had been married to a woman, and um, well, not registered. It was just like a, an arrangement. And they had two children together. They were living as husband and wife, an unregistered marriage. And so they're happily living coexisting together, and then he struck up a relationship with another woman, and he had a child with that woman, so now he's got two families. So the first wife decided to leave him, and so he's now with the, then he became with the, the moved in with the second wife, and, and that became his family. <clears throat> so the first wife came back with her two children, and this is when the pastor contacted me, because she wanted to reconcile with the husband and have them be a proper family again, but he was kind of living in this other arrangement with, as a family. So a very, very clear, cut-and-dried situation, you can see. <clears throat> so the pastor contacted me. He asked me this question, what should I do? <laughs> and my answer was, of course, I possess all wisdom in the world. My answer was, I have no idea. <clears throat> <laughs> but I suppose the question would be, what does obedience to God mean in this situation? Now, I don't know the guy. I didn't know either woman involved. I didn't know the children that had been born to them. But the first step, I think, is to determine that this guy really wants to try to do the will of God from the heart. It's the most obvious thing in the world that his own sin has messed up his life. But will he recognize his disobedience or will he blame someone else for his problems? His actions will bear consequences, but obedience must spring from a, the faith of a renewed heart. For people who repent, who return from their prodigal ways, God shows mercy, and He somehow seems to make a way where there is no way. This word mercy has been used several times in Romans 9 to 11. It's four, repeated four times in these verses, and it reflects the plea of the sinner it's a thing David had asked for in Psalm 143. Let your ears be attentive to my plea for mercy. Those who seek mercy, God's mercy, armed only with a knowledge of their desperate state, they're the ones who find it. One of the greatest gospel communicators of our generation, Tim Keller, I'm thankful for Vin putting up that slide next, uh, last, uh, last Sunday, passed away a month ago. In his uh, book called The Prodigal God, Keller kind of turns the tables. So we know this most famous of stories from Luke 15. The son asks his father, wealthy father, for half of his inheritance, or his part of the inheritance, and then he goes out and wastes the money on booze, drugs, and prostitutes. And then he goes back and asks his dad if he can come back home again. 
And what Keller, we think that that guy's the wasteful one, but what Keller points out in his, in his book is that it's actually God who's the wasteful one because he continues to squander his grace on somebody who doesn't deserve it. And the elder brother, of course, the responsible one, who's been the good boy his whole life, he can't get it. God should, the father should be exercising some measure of judgment or ex, at least showing tough love. We have to admit, I think, that we much prefer God to be less wasteful with his grace. The psalmists were always asking this question, God, why do you let the wicked prosper? I mean, if I was God, right? If we were God, but wasn't that the whole problem at the beginning? We didn't trust God's judgments. We wanted to be able to judge for ourselves. We rejected God's wisdom because we thought we knew better. God, who is rich in mercy, rewires his people to become those who abstain from judgment. And Jesus said it directly, judge not lest you be judged, and instead show mercy. Our DNA, people of God, is now reconfigured to be like God's because we've received a blood transfusion through his merciful son. The church must be a place of mercy. The Christian must be a conduit of mercy or we have forgotten the gospel. In his book, The Triumph of Christianity, Rodney Stark, a sociologist, gives a set of reasons for why the church grew so quickly in the first few centuries. And one of the chapters is about mercy that Christians showed to other people. Stark writes this, in the pagan world and especially among the philosophers, mercy was regarded as a character defect. Now, isn't that a funny thing to think? We don't ever think about that as a character defect. Can you think of Mother Teresa? She's de a defect in her character. That shows how much mercy has overtaken the world. But in the first century, mercy was a character defect. And pity is a pathological emotion. Why? Because mercy involves providing unearned help or relief. It's contrary to justice. This was the moral climate in which Christianity taught that, the, that mercy is one of the primary virtue, virtues, that a merciful God requires humans to be merciful. Moreover, the corollary that because God loves humanity, Christians may not please God unless they love one another was even more incompatible with pagan convictions. But the truly revolutionary principle was that Christian love and charity must extend beyond the boundaries of family and even those of faith to all in need. These first Christians were rewired through the blood transfusion they had received, and they became merciful people in a mercy-less society. So they took care of orphans and widows. They gave food to the hungry. They gave shelter to the homeless. Some of them got the plague by trying to raise back to health or, or nurture back to health sick neighbors. They started hospitals. <laughs> when we see all these hospitals around us, that, that came from this group of people that was trying to understand how to dispense mercy. 
because they had been rewired. So lest we, the body of Christ, become an in-house gathering of people who are always trying to iron out our theology and our statements of faith, we become shaped by the gospel, which means we become those who share the mercy we've received, and we share it freely and extravagantly. We share it with one another. We overlook each other's faults because God has overlooked our faults through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we share that mercy with those outside the church. We have places like Journey Home and the House of Omid, and we have people in the kitchen making sandwiches for the homeless, and others picking up bread from, from Cobb's Bread. All of us, as we're merciful within this family and outside the family, it's because God has rewired us. But here's the thing. It's an ideal, right? I'm quite sure that most of us, and I don't say this to condemn this group particularly, because I'm part of it. Most of us tend to judgment before mercy. See, we're way more like the prophet Jonah. We aren't that thrilled when God chooses to be compassionate to the people he, we want him to blast. Most of us have the thought, it serves you right when we see the policeman stop the speeder on the side of the road getting his just desserts. It's pride that puts us in the place of judgment and makes us feel that mercy must somehow be earned. But we've been pardoned by a merciful God, a God who's slow to anger, who's swift to bless, a God who longs to show compassion. We are children of a prodigal God who has wasted his grace on people like us. So we prove our DNA when we pass it on. We respond to God's kindness with humility. We respond with mercy. And third, and finally, we respond with worship. Paul ends this section, Romans 9 to 11. Oh, the depth of riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given, him, given, to, given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. I studied theology under J.I. Packer, and I say that to give myself a little face because he's the best, one of the best theologians in the world. But uh, Dr. Packer would have us begin every class or he would begin every class by saying these words, theology leads to doxology. And we would stand at the beginning of every, every class and we would sing the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. It's very sad to me that theology in the church and often in my own life has led to pride instead of worship. So Paul ends this final section, this most theological section we could say, with a statement of worship to God who works out such an amazing plan of salvation. And he says, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. He quotes from three Old Testament passages, prayers offered by Isaiah and by Job that ask, ask, how can we possibly understand the wisdom of God? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. God has done the unthinkable. He's humbled himself by becoming one of us. 
He placed his hands on people with leprosy and the unclean, and he allowed us to put them to death. <laughs> the extent of God's mercy. We worship our God as somebody who has invited us to his table, and I don't know if you have this image in your mind every day, but every day is sort of like being invited again. We wake up to God's table where he's communing with us and he's sharing with us the abundance of the beauty, beauty of the world that, that he's created for us. And we go to that place every day, God's table, and we enjoy communion with him. We partake of his gifts. What a wonderful invitation. It's been a long time since Joy and I have received an invitation to a fancy dinner. And I say those words without the least bit of remorse. Please don't invite us to any fancy dinners. <laughs> That's the last thing we'd want to do. <laughs> but one thing that almost every invitation had in common for us, or every result of every invitation, was that it would lead Joy to stress out about what to wear to the fancy dinner. And I'm like oblivious, well, just wear pants and a sweater. That's what I'm doing. Just you don't have to dress up. How do we dress when we come to the Lord's table? The meal of all meals where God himself is the host. <laughs> but even God's taking care of that. We don't have to dress ourselves. Revelation 7 verse 14. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. No other merit no other standing, no other clothes to wear to the dinner with God, but made white in the blood of the Lamb. CJ, you're here? Yeah. <clears throat> Back to the DNA illustration. A few hundred years ago, the poet and hymn writer William Cooper wrote a hymn about this great blood transfusion about that time when our DNA was rewritten. And I've asked CJ if she would just sing a couple of verses and I wanna ask us just to maybe listen quietly while CJ sings this and receive again the beauty through song of what God has done for us through our Lord Jesus. Till I die and 
This long letter to the church at Rome leads us to worship the God who has given us this blood transfusion, the God who has completely rewired us through the blood of His Son. And so we come with humility because we've got nothing to offer Him. And we come again to receive His mercy because we have no excuse for his kindness and we come to worship because from him and through him and to him truly are all things I'm going to close in prayer here in a moment but after we pray there will be some reflection questions on the screen and uh, also there will be people up front here to pray with you elders and pastors um, so if you'd like to receive prayer this morning I invite you to come forward but let's pray together Thank you for opening up our eyes, our God, to who you are. When we were blinded by the world and by ourselves regarding both who you are and who we are. Thank you for helping us see that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, beautifully made in your image with dignity and beauty, well worth you dying for. But thank you for also helping us see how distorted, painfully distorted, we became through our sin. And thank you so much for the promise of making us new again. I ask for ourselves individually that you would open up our eyes more clearly, more further, to be able to see the depths of your grace, and that you would open up our eyes to see this church family and the beauty of what you've created through our Lord Jesus. Grace upon grace, we give you thanks. In the name of Jesus, amen.